Well, hello and welcome to another interview on the Catholic Pulse. My name is Robert Cahoon. I'm really honoured and blessed today with, to be with Father Andrew Pinson, who um, is an incredibly intelligent priest. Um, he is the research director of the Ian Ramsey Centre for Science and Religion, based at the University of Oxford. Um, he's also a research fellow at uh, Harris Manchester College, and he's a priest of uh, the uh, Diocese of Arundel Brighton as well. Um, I'm just looking at your um, educational qualifications, uh, Father Andrew, just an in incredible background that you've had being a physicist involved at the Delphi Project at CERN, uh, many publications, and how, how many degrees, Father, do you, do you actually have in, in total? I think, have you lost count or? Uh... I think it's between five and seven. I don't quite know exactly. <laughs> it depends how many you want to count, really, but um, it's just I spent a long time in higher education, one way, one way or another. And I'm, and I'm still regard myself as a beginner. <laughs> um, it's just uh, um, amazing the career that you've had and uh, you're, you're currently based in Oxford as well um, could you just sort of give us a background to your um, studies how, how you first of all um, your, your PhDs and how you came to uh, become a priest as well just a sort of summary of your, your personal life and background yes so as a teenager I was a bit of a nerd and uh, I was hugely excited by science all kinds of science um, but particularly astronomy and particle physics. When I was growing up, um, the Voyager space missions were in progress. In fact, they're still in progress. Uh, and every few years, another planet would appear uh, that's never been seen properly before with all its moons. And it's, it was a tremendously exciting time. Um, and I was just uh, really in love with with, with scientific research, but I didn't know which science to choose. So um, I came to the conclusion, if I studied physics, then I could later study any science, So, which was actually quite a, a sound instinct. So I went to Oxford to study physics, and I became interested not so much in outer space, but in inner space, uh, the world of the atom, uh, which is at least as big as outer space in terms of all the different worlds to explore. Uh, so, um, having finished my undergraduate degree, I applied for a doctorate, also at Oxford, uh, and a doctorate in particle physics. Oxford at that time was building equipment for um, the Large Electron-Positron Collider in Geneva. It was in the same tunnel as the current Large Hadron Collider. The tunnel is enormous. It's 27 kilometers in circumference. And... It does amazing things. It smashes matter and antimatter together, nearly at the speed of light, uh, get as much energy into as small a space as possible. And when that happens, um, we see underlying symmetries and laws of nature. We can see how things fit together in a sort of the, the, the pure and simple state of the Big Bang. Uh, and uh, often we can discover uh, the underlying principles of the laws of physics governing uh, uh, the universe today. So um, I worked on that experiment, it was a lot of fun, uh, a lot of hard work. And uh, after that, I thought I'd been sated really, three years of uh, designing equipment, testing equipment in Geneva, writing software, working out data. And um, I thought I wanted to change. So I spent seven years of business, uh, three years working for a consultancy firm in England. Then, for, then I got bored with that as well. <coughs> Excuse me. 
And then in four years, I really set up my own business. And I worked as a consultant for a company in Brazil called Itatec Filco. And I used to go out to Sao Paulo. Um, I think it's, by the way, very important for people with some Western business experience to spend time in developing countries because yeah. one's expertise is very much valued uh, and very helpful. So uh, I did that for four years. And then I had a call to become a priest. And being a businessman, I rationalized it uh, in business terms. I, I did a cost-benefit analysis, which is <laughs> the sort of standard heuristic one uses before making a, a business decision. Yeah, and I thought, well, it's going to cost me my life, <laughs> uh, but um, the potential fruitfulness is enormous because I was already convinced that our main main task of life is to know and love God, uh, and to be fruitful in this life, knowing and loving God. And um, the work of a priest, I won't describe it as being a bridge; that's too grand. Mm -hmm. But I'll describe it as being a doormat. <laughs> so. A priest is to be a doormat to the kingdom of heaven uh, for other people. And that seems like the best possible return on my investment. Um, but I, I had no idea what to do. I had no idea where priests came from. So I spoke to our local priest, and he said, well, you've got to go, you've got to talk to a bishop. So um, I approached the bishop's secretary of my diocese. I was interviewed seven, I think, between seven and nine times. I can't remember exactly how many times. Wow. It, was a t it was a long, long process. <laughs> I joked at the end, I said... I've never worked so hard to earn so little. Um, uh, but anyway, I, I was accepted for training, and I started training at the Venerable English College in Rome, which was tough. Imagine going to another country, uh, studying philosophy in Italian. That's <laughs> with starting from zero. You know, that was that was how it was. Uh, uh, that's how my seminary experience started. But um, I loved philosophy, um, even if it wasn't taught always very well uh and um i thought why has no one taught me this before I, i've i've trained to smash particles in geneva no one's taught me the history of western thought no one's taught me the history of of ideas of um how we divide, how we think about the world and i thought this is amazing i love philosophy i still love philosophy and in the course of my training to be a priest i studied four years of philosophy then a professor arrived from the United States called Eleanor Stump. And Professor Stump said to me, I will uh, get you funding to do a doctorate with me in America. And uh, I said, well, that sounds good. Uh, but I don't decide my future. My bishop decides my future. So she, uh, she contacted my bishop. And after that conversation, uh, he phoned me and said, you are going to America. So one week after ordination, I was in the American Midwest in Missouri. And I started another four years of philosophy. So that, now that's eight years of philosophy altogether. Um, and that was quite life-changing. So Eleanor Stump taught me how to write for often a much more secular audience um, than I was used to. And that was, that was very important. And then a job came up in Oxford. They were really looking for someone with philo philosophy, theology, mm -hmm. science, and business background. Wow. I thought, oh, <laughs> this may be the last job in the world I can still do. So, um, my diocese kindly released me to study, uh, to, to go to Oxford, and I've been there ever since, for about 11 years now. Wow, fantastic. And uh, it puts you in a very good, you know, not only being a priest, but also being a, a scientist. You know, what do you say to people who say, you know, isn't the church anti-science? And, 
you know, I mean, from your position, that's quite easy to, to refute, but uh, there are so many misconceptions and assumptions in, in the, the idea that the church is anti-science. Right. So, so how do you deconstruct that uh, argument? Well, first of all, one has to appreciate one's dealing with a very um, powerful prejudice uh, that's got to be confronted. And the problem is the prejudice impacts even on, on our 10-year-olds. So if I visit a school, uh, often I, some, some 10 or 11-year-old <laughs> will tell me that I'm anti-science. You know? uh, and I say, well, that's interesting. What does the word faith mean? Well, they don't know. I said, what is, what, is, what is science? They don't know that either. But they do know that faith is against science. So they've, they've picked up that prejudice, even wow. though they don't know what <coughs> is meant by either faith or science. <coughs> if they're older children, um, they might confront me on a particular issue. So they might say, well, how can I be a priest and believe in a Big Bang theory? Mm -hmm. And of course, when they say that, I'm sort of rubbing my hands with excitement because I can then tell them that a priest invented the Big Bang theory. I showed him a picture of uh, Georges Lemaitre with Albert Einstein. Uh, Georges Lemaitre was the Belgian priest and astrophysicist who solved Einstein's equations of general relativity to predict universal expansion, and he showed how it could be tested. It was tested a few years later by a man called Edwin Hubble, um, after whom the Hubble Space Telescope is named. Uh, so, so it's very strange if the church is anti-science that we've had people like George Lemaitre and we've had others. Perhaps if your if your listeners and uh, viewers don't mind me going through a few names. So look at genetics. Genetics is the most important theory of modern biology. Um, and uh, that started with a monk in the 19th century um, breeding 29,000 pea plants as one does, you know. Imagine going out to the mon go out to monastery gardens and start breeding twenty nine thousand pea plants, and um, uh, he he worked out what we now call the laws of genetics. It's called Mendelian genetics. That's Greek or Mendel. Um, and here's another one. Uh, um, the the narrative today is often the church is sort of held women back, mm -hmm. or being anti women. You know, um, I bet very few people know. The first woman professor of mathematics, Maria Agnesi, was appointed by a pope, Pope Benedict the uh, Fourteenth, uh, and was appointed in 1750. To put that achievement in retrospect, in into perspective, uh, the first woman to get a PhD in mathematics in the United States was not till nearly the end of the 19th century, nearly 150 years later. Um, and Maria Agnesi, an exceptional woman, but she wasn't alone. The first woman to get a doctoral degree was Eleanor Piscopia. She was a Venetian Catholic. Um, and in fact, I remember when I was at CERN in Geneva, which is a sort of a huge international um, melting pot for scientists from many different countries. But the Southern Europeans uh, had a lot more women. So, you know, even today, uh, the state of women in science in, in, in Catholic countries has actually often been rather good and probably somewhat ahead of um, uh, the, the Northern European, more traditionally Protestant countries. So, Father, you're really from a long list of uh, sort of Catholic uh, clergy who are also scientists from Copernicus to Mendel to Roger Bacon, um, yes. Lemaitre, Le William Morocco. So there's, there's quite a long tradition of... of 
priests who, who were also scientists as well. I remember the last interview I, I did with you, um, we were talking about your booklet, The Lumen, uh, which, which really kind of goes deep into this kind of, I remember there was a debate going back 10 years ago with, uh, you know, what yeah. good has the Catholic Church done kind of in society and, uh, and uh, it, it was very much the Catholic position lost that, that lost that debate on the BBC. Um, but in yes. the booklet Lumen, you really just go into detail. You know what has the church done for society, and in so many different fields, there's just a, well, right. a long, long list of benefits. You know, which uh, you, which comprehensively you deal with that in that booklet. Yes. Well, the the fact is, the BBC was sort of um, uh, it provides a sort of an object lesson. Uh, for that um, the world is not fair about such things um, and the BBC who seems to be pretty ignorant to me every, every encounter I have with them is pretty, they're pretty ignorant but <laughs> they they also have very little actual science background um, they don't recruit many scientists um, and um, their narrative is that the church must be against science now that debate you talked about um, and Widdicombe, and it was a Nigerian Archbishop and Stephen Fry and uh, I think Christopher Hitchens. Well. So, they, so they got famous, Steve, yeah. so got Stephen Fry and Christopher Hitchens, yeah. who are very skilled yeah. in the modern media, mm -hmm. and they got a Nigerian bishop. Yeah, and Widdicombe. Um, why were these these two chosen? I don't know. Um, uh, it's almost it was a complete setup. The whole thing was 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 a setup. Um, but you can't trust the BBC. And I'll give you another example. So some years ago, there was a, uh, a programme on the Big Bang. Um, and uh, there was a presenter the BBC likes a lot. Uh, I can't remember his name offhand, but it may come to me. Um, but they had a one-hour presentation on Big Bang, and they didn't mention Georges Lemaitre, <laughs> uh, which is a bit like giving a presentation on Einstein. Sorry, a presentation on relativity without mentioning Einstein. Yeah. Um, so... I've really, it's really come home to me, you can't trust these people. Um, uh, fortunately, thanks to your own work and those many others, um, the monopolies have been partly broken in terms of the media. Mm. Uh, so we can educate ourselves. I'm always struck with just how good so much material on YouTube is. You know, yeah. um, I was watching a series recently on, on geography and uh, uh, there's a group who've gone through every country in the world and just a potted summary and it's fantastic, <laughs> you know. Or uploaded for free, you know. It's um, uh, you got to be a bit critical of some some things, some sometimes. But uh, we have um, a tremendous um, advantage today in terms of the diversity of media, and and gradually the old monopolies are being broken. So, if you were in that debate, um, that BBC debate, you know, what what would you you'd have said? You know, what good has the Catholic Church done for society and you know, across the board, our architecture, you know, well, science, yeah. I, I would try to make the point that the whole of what we term Western civilization, it's, it's a bit of a, a controversial phrase in itself, but it's really a byproduct of um, Christians seeking heaven. And if, if you think that's exaggerated, uh, where did all our art come from? Now, um, our art... Um, one of the things that makes Christianity a bit different, to say the least, from um, other kinds of religions is the belief in the incarnation and the concretely given supernatural. The word has made flesh. And with that, um, then one could depict God in paint 
and on statues uh, and with statues without blasphemy. Uh, and that gave rise to um, an enormous impetus in the visual arts um, uh, bec and it, because it's a way of, make, of sort of continuing the sense of the concretely given supernatural. And really, that was the main driving force for art for a thousand years. Uh, oh, here's another thing. So where did our music come from? Where did our musical notation system come from? Um, if you're a monk in a monastery a thousand years ago uh, and you want to sing um, in unison with your fellow monks, you have to sing from the same hymn sheet. But first of all, you've got to, you've got to invent hymn sheets. <laughs> uh, and that also comes out of the Catholic Church. Um, where did our laws come from? And all kinds of principles like uh, principle of good faith, uh, the principle of uh, trial by jury, um, uh, the principle of uh, innocent until proven guilty. And that's really under pressure today, innocent until proven guilty. Uh, but these are all Catholic principles from the high Middle Ages. Uh, our, our Western legal system uh, comes from, um, starts really with canon law um, nearly a thousand years ago. Uh, and you can go through many, many other fields. Where did our universities come from? I'm at Oxford. Now, Oxford is... Um, it's actually one of our oldest universities in the world. Uh, and because of that, it's got a lot of really, really ancient buildings. And all these are obviously Catholic buildings. They've got Gothic. Gothic, the Gothic architectural style is praying. It's pointing upwards. And um, uh, it's the precise opposite of brutalism. Um, and all the older buildings at Oxford are Gothic because uh, they're designed by Catholics. And every old, every, almost all the um, colleges have chapels where the Blessed Sacrament was offered. Um, again, because this is a Catholic institution. But most beautifully of all, um, Oxford's really puzzling. And I've been, I've been at Oxford now for, uh, how many years is it? About 16 years in total. Yeah. I, I still don't know how it works. <laughs> now, um, and no one else does. Um, it, it's really a set of interlocking medieval guilds. And um, now you might think as a disadvantage, uh, a, a university can't understand how the university works, but it's a massive advantage <laughs> because the evil minds can't get into the center of things and destroy it. Um, they can't uh, deconstruct it. Like the they can't deconstruct it. It's, <laughs> it's very hard to deconstruct it. Well, the people yeah. are trying, of course. Yeah. Um, but it's really a set of interlocking medieval guilds. And it's like a garden and a machine. It's great. And in a garden, you can wander through and pick up unusual blossoms uh, that are cross-fertilized from different plants. Um, and, and that's why Oxford is still a place where original ideas come from. Uh, and it's very hard to replicate that. It's very hard to produce a university that's like a machine and still be uh, still and still produces good ideas um i was discussing really i just had a, uh, i just had a tutorial with a student a few minutes ago and mm. we were discussing how when companies build corporate headquarters almost always that's the uh, death knell because <laughs> they're going to turn themselves into machines yeah. and produce no new ideas you know um but uh ox is not like that it's it's a very decentralized um 
set of uh, medieval guilds, and it still produces original ideas. So at the moment, there are vaccines against COVID in the world, and Oxford is the only university with its name attached to one of those vaccines. Mm-hmm. So with your, with your background, Father, of, um, you know, science, uh, faith, religion and business as well, um, you've also written the Y course as well. And that's, that's a kind of a 101 introduction to Catholicism of, of philosophy. Uh, tell, tell, us, tell us about the Y course and the kind of the, the basic premises in it. In it. Right. Um, so the Y course aims to do something impossible. It should introduce Catholic Christianity in three lessons. <laughs> that's that's uh, <laughs> and you, know, you could write libraries about the Catholic faith and all its cultural impact and so on. Um, but you've got to start somewhere. So uh, if you can, so what we tried to do was get things down to just three sessions, um, a maximum of one hour each, uh, which we thought would be enough uh, to give a basic introduction. And there are three sections of why God, why Christ, and why the Church. And uh, what we try to do uh, is try to um, get through just the basics. Uh, it, it's quite a philosophically oriented course, so um, but but not using jargon. So um, it, so we try to anticipate what sort of questions people ask. Why is there something rather than nothing? Why is there order rather than disorder mm-hmm. in the world? Um, and try to encourage people to think about the world around them and the purposes of their lives. Um, what we did uh, initially is we, we interviewed a lot of young people at, our evang- at the Evangelium conference. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then we, we spliced the interviews together into, into three narratives covering why God, why Christ, and why the church. Um, and uh, so the narratives give it a sense of freshness uh, we didn't we, we let we allowed the text to t- develop organically we didn't try to write it all ourselves from scratch we used the replies of these young people to these questions and then we put them into a coherent narrative fantastic and did you use artwork in that because in the evangelium course you had quite a lot of arts sort of as catechesis as well or was yes that there's, a, there's, a, there's a lot of yeah. art used and mm-hmm. Uh, the Catholic faith is the great faith of art more than anything yeah. else. You know, um, Catholic pictures represent the human face and the hands. Um, and also there's spectacular things from nature. Um, so we talked about Georges Lemaitre earlier. I mean, he appears uh, along with Albert Einstein. I saw Greek or Mendel. Um, and we also use pictures from William Blake and, uh, and there's Mary Magdalene. Uh, I'm just having a look now. Yes, and we use a few samples uh, from classical works. Um, I'm rather fond of the Garden of Earthly Delights by Hieronymus <laughs> Bosch. Yeah. Now, Bosch is, I remember when I, I started art briefly at school, and at school, uh, uh, they, they describe the history of art starting from when it became secular. Um <laughs> And when it, uh, uh, that's, that's it. It's when it became <laughs> secular. It's yeah. when the history of art starts in our schools. There's a thousand years. There are many thousands of years before then. There's a thousand years of Christian art before then, um, but it's not talked about, generally speaking. Um, and when I remember when they got to surrealism, they presented mm-hmm. surrealism as something new. 
Um, <laughs> but they had to admit that Hieronymus Bosch back in the uh, 15th century uh, came up with, with with something far more extraordinary than surrealism uh, with his uh, Garden of Earthly Delights and other works. Pretty, pretty um, spectacular picture. <laughs> yeah, yes, yes, say. indeed. Yeah. There's so much theology in it. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Uh, so what else we got here? Um, obviously, we also show the precursors of Christianity. We ask, mm -hmm. we, we ask people to think, why are so many cities built around temples? It's a natural religious impulse. Um, uh, you, you help to really deal with the, the crisis of catechesis, you know, with, with both with the Y course and also Evangelium as well, because, you know, so many Catholics just don't know their faith at all. And, and we've been lacking a really good catechesis for, for well over 50 years. And, you know, right. at, least, at least getting people to really think deeply about, you know, you know, why God, like just the most basic sort of uh, 101 questions about, about our faith can, can really yeah. help to answer, answer those questions. And I can't imagine what it's like working at CERN, uh, sort of bashing particles together or, or what, what it might, must be like, but, but having a sense of awe and wonder about our faith and, and bringing that open for, uh, you know, a, a wider audience, just, helping people to have a, a sense of, 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 of amazement. And that's, I think that's probably the great interface between science and religion is that, you know, it's, there's mystery, discovery, antiquity, just you know, all combined in one. And, and they do sort of overlap in a way, um, but also complement each other and they aren't necessarily yes. divorced or, or, or against from each other. And that's, that's a great sort of position where, where you're at. What, what was it like working at CERN? It must've been, uh, I mean, what what does everyone do at, at CERN all day? Are they sort of bash particles together, or how does it work there? Um, it's a funny mix. Yeah. So we're dealing with very high technology in, in one sense. We're also doing really low technology and uh, mm -hmm. uh, almost jokingly low tech. So um, I remember testing whether some equipment is working by lowering a radioactive source on a fishing rod down the side of the detector, and then go back to the control room and seeing if there's a spike or not. And, uh, oh, that's working, you know, <laughs> or not. Um, so, and some of it's not, not very glamorous. So, so we were testing 6,000 gas connections, um, all of which have been supplied by the lowest cost supplier, um, looking for leaks, you know, that, that sort of thing. So, so there is, there is this uh, quite mundane work. And I'm very glad my father uh, taught me a bit of plumbing when I was growing up, and uh, uh, it can be quite useful working in high high tech um, uh, physics. Um, there's a lot of software. The software is as much work goes into software as hardware. We have to build uh, a software replica of an entire particle detector. Uh, that's part of what's needed for the analysis, and that's uh, uh, a staggering amount of work. Uh, as much as much as I say goes effort goes into the software as into the hardware. Um, so there's a lot of mundane stuff, but the big picture stuff is um, is quite transcendent and quite awesome. Um, but I want to, give, to to explain the impact of that. Let me give you a slightly different story. Mm -hmm. So a few years ago, I met a Mexican astronaut. Now, I didn't I didn't know Mexico had astronauts exactly, but they do a few, um, or they are Mexican immigrants to the United States who later joined NASA. And there's there's a man uh, from who, at the age of twelve, was picking fruit in California, a very poor background, um, and at the age of twelve he saw the last moon landing, 
on a on a grainy black and white television, and he's told his parents, "I want to be an astronaut," which is you know doesn't look too likely if you're <laughs> picking fruit in California dirt poor at the age of twelve. <laughs> um, but he was absolutely determined, and he worked himself up to get um, advanced education. He became a doctor of engineering, um, and then he started applying to NASA. And it's, a, it's an amazing story of persistence because they get about 10,000 applicants a year. This was during the shuttle program, so there were some places for astronauts. Um, 10,000 applicants a year. Uh, and every year he failed. And then he began to get smart. He said, well, what do the winning astronauts have? And he realized they all knew how to fly. Right. Next year, he'd always had to fly. He became, got all the certificates, everything. He still failed. And then he looked again at the successful astronauts. He also realized they all knew how to dive. So that following year, he taught himself to dive. He got all the certificates, everything, right? So now he's a doctor of engineering, fully qualified pilot, fully qualified diver. He still fails. And then he realizes NASA's going to work a lot with Russia in the future. So he goes off to Russia. He um, learns fluent Russian. He works on nuclear decommissioning work in Russia in the early days after the uh, uh, fall of the Soviet Union. And um, uh, now he's got Russian as well and uh, a lot of Russian collaborative experience. And the second time he tried, he, he was shortlisted. And the second time he was shortlisted, he was successful. What an amazing story. Now, I had to ask him, what was it like going into space? Yeah. Um, and uh, after all this amazing work to get there, um, and he said it changed his life spiritually wow. because when he saw the stars above the Earth's atmosphere, the stars in all their clarity, he was awestruck and he thought there has to be a God. Wow. Uh, and he left Earth as a nominal Catholic. He came back as a man of deep faith. Uh, it's a rather expensive way to uh, get people to uh, become uh, committed to their faith, but um, it's something to think about. We don't see the stars very much as as people today. Yeah, <clears throat> and it's, uh, the nineteenth century popes were concerned about this. So there was um, a man called Pope Gregory the Sixteenth who uh, who stopped streetlights coming to Rome because people will not be able to see the stars. Um, now, his successor, the relatively liberal Pius IX, uh, allows streetlights. But the fact they, they realized it was an issue was insignificant because right. we, we can't see the big world so much anymore. We're actually in quite a small world in terms of our daily lives. Um, mm. uh, and that's one, way, that's one way in which science, if you like, real science promotes faith because it, it really expands the mind. And uh, it's very natural to have a sense of awe. Uh, when engaging with that. Now I'm, not now, I'm not talking about the pop scientists who appear on television, mm -hmm. many of whom are not really scientists <laughs> um, or don't, haven't produced many publications for many, many decades. Um, but people that actually gain the science is actually often quite... Um, the, or the, the sense of awe inspired by engaging with the physical world uh, is... Uh, often, not always, but often uh, can make people receptive to faith. And so where is it in the science that, you know, we've got this amazing awe and wonder that can help lead people to God? So where in your, in your mind is it, 
science that has taken people away from God? How, how does that happen? And how does that, you know, how is that sort of, how is this division between religion and science happened? Is it is sort of an unnatural science? Because you're saying that science does lead people to God, um, you know, the, appreciating the stars, the, the wonder in that. Where is it that science has drifted off? Is it from philosophy, from scientism? Is it from, you know, just the developments in philosophy? Or is it just, you know, becoming engrossed okay. in our own world and having a, a secular materialist uh, materialist outlook? I think, I think the last one is most yeah. uh, important. Uh, and uh, in fact, this was understood by Aldous Huxley when he wrote the book Brave New World which is a very prophetic book about our own age, really. Uh, and in Brave New World, uh, people are kept busy all day long with pointless activities, uh, recreational sex, um, work that doesn't really do anything. They're <laughs> surrounded with pipe music. Uh, they play silly games. And they do that till they die. <laughs> Sounds like um, <laughs> Exactly. Now, yeah. um now, what's very fascinating is that the, the main characters in the story, they meet this, the man who's one of the controllers of the Brave New World so towards the end of the book. And he says something interesting about God. He says, there's probably a God, but we're not interested. We keep, we keep people busy so they never have time to, to think about these things. Um, and, uh, and this man, he keeps uh, uh, Newman's works and the Bible locked up in his safe. So, so he's one of the very people who have these books. Um, but so people don't get a chance to, uh, to think about these ideas. That's the biggest challenge we face. It's not science. Science itself is the friend of faith. And science tends to lead to, and the very exploration of the natural world is an exploration of God's handiwork. And, it is, and the proper engagement of the natural world produces humility, which is itself very important for faith. Um, but uh, the scientific world we live in um, is very good at distracting us. And this, is, again, by the way, this is not a new, this was recognized by the ancient Greeks. Uh, so have you heard of Plato's myth of the cave? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Plato's myth of the cave. So, so in the Republic, book seven, um, Plato, through the, the character of Socrates, um, describes human beings as prisoners in a cave um, and they're compelled to watch the shadows of the puppets of real things on the walls of the cave. Uh, the shadows cast by puppets behind their heads um, and the whole battle for wisdom according to Plato is to get out of that cave and see the sun. Hmm. Now a few years ago I went to Hollywood. I sat on the set of Friends. It could have been any other show. I suddenly realized this is Plato's cave yeah. for the 21st century. And the challenge we face is that people are trapped in that cave. Because uh, if, they, if they see nothing but the shadows of puppets of real things, projected mm -hmm. on their walls, um, then uh, it's unlikely they're going to acquire wisdom uh, or, or practice of faith. Yeah. And... Um what are you working on at the moment and what, what plans do you have for the near future, Father? What's sort of coming up for you um, in the next few years? One thing I really want to do before I die is write a decent yep. confirmation course. Okay. And <laughs> that's, that's my biggest single personal project. Um, and I realized that one challenge would be that 
there isn't classical art available. So there are only two or three pictures ever of Pentecost. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and the modern art, or the modern, and including in religious books, is often very poor. So I spent about a year and a half finding someone who could do decent art uh, and who could represent Catholic truth uh, well. I found her. She's a, an American artist in California, and she is painting a series of 10 pictures, um, which will be for a confirmation course based on the Beatitudes. So there are eight Beatitudes. We'll have an extra module at the beginning, an extra module at the end. Uh, 10 sessions about what I think anyone can cope with in a year. Um, and the art will be original art um, that's both traditional but very up-to-date as well. So, uh, and one of the fun things is that there's lots of, there are lots of good computer models available. So, um, so for example, there are, there are computer games where you've got zombies uh, running, running through medieval churches, that sort of thing. So, so medieval, so lots of models of medieval churches, a lot of models of angels, there are lots of models of, um, you could buy a model of Notre Dame before it's burnt uh, for a few dollars. Uh, and I've got some in this country to do three dimensional to use these three-dimensional models to to mock up the pictures and then they go to California for painting. So um, that's my long-term project. I've, I'm about halfway through. So hopefully five or six years time, I have my confirmation course done um, and that'll be fun. Uh, in terms of my own research, uh, mm -hmm. I am very interested in something called the second person perspective, uh, the I-thou relationship. Mm -hmm. uh, and there was a Jewish philosopher called Martin Buber who kick-started this topic about in the early 20th century. But what has put it onto an empirical basis is a study of conditions like autistic spectrum disorder. So um, autistic spectrum disorder, often children don't point very much. They don't, they don't engage in, in shared awareness or shared focus. And all these things are teaching us that this second-person perspective is really important. Um, and I think this is how we can understand nature and grace. Uh, and I'll use this as a metaphor. I must stress it's a metaphor. Mm -hmm. um, but I think with grace that we lose our spiritual autism to God, the spiritual autism we're all born with. Uh, and we, we move from just relating to God as um, uh, in, a, in terms of a contract uh, into, into a covenant uh, where we... And and learn and that whole Catholic life is really about that covenant with God, about shared awareness or shared focus with God. I want to give you an example of this: the Eucharist. Uh, in the Eucharist, what happens? What we we share we share awareness or shared focus with God. We love with God the things God loves, and we sacrifice with God what God sacrifices for our salvation. It's all about second person perspective. It's about the second person perspective. Um, you, wrote a book, uh, you wrote a book about that with, with, in Aquinas's Ethics. Uh, yes, that's right. And gifts. Yeah. So Aquinas had uh, something to say about that as well, does he? Yes. And what was a real yeah. revelation was to find that he was writing in the 13th century about yeah. things that we're now uncovering in experimental psychology in the early wow. 21st century. Amazing. Um, but no one's made the connection previously. So um, it, it's, a one, it's like uh, exploring an unknown world. Uh, and with a, with a new toolkit, so it's exciting research. In fact, um, 
have a student joining me next year who's an F-16 pilot from the American Air Force. And he's and he wrote to me a few days ago saying just how excited it was about all this work. And he could relate it to his pilot training as well. So so <laughs> um so you, you know interesting connections that you would never imagine. Well, well, it's been absolutely fascinating speaking with you today, Father. And um, for those who are interested in some of your um, books and writings, uh, CTS, who publish Evangelium and the Lumen book we mentioned, uh, also the Y course as well. And you've, you've also written, you know, many, many other pu academic publications. Yes, the, well. the, the CTS also has two small booklets. Uh, I've written one mm -hmm. on the theological virtues and one on the carnal virtues. Uh, and they, they bring in some of the second personal work. So... Um, they're quite a good introduction to that whole area. Yeah, well, I'm really awestruck with um, just being such a privilege speaking with you today, Father. Thank you so much for uh, your wisdom and insight. May God bless all the work that you're doing in Oxford and very much look forward to this confirmation course on, on the Beatitudes. Uh, thank you. Please out. pray for me. So, thank you so much and for I, uh, being I, with you today. Yeah. I thank you for your work, uh, Robert, and mm -hmm. I thank those of you who are watching or listening. Uh, and... Um, I hope to see some of you in heaven one day. That's hopefully all of you. So that's what I pray for. God bless Brilliant. you. Thank you so much indeed, Father. God bless you.